another day, another dollar makes you wonder where your money went. You can scream and you can holler. Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Today is episode 118 of the Survival Podcast, and as always, this show is one man's opinion. You are welcome to differ, but what we're doing here together is trying to figure out how to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Uh, via a modern survivalist philosophy, which means we talk about all aspects of things here um, regarding potential threats, uh, potential threats in the political world, the uh, the disease world, like flu pandemic. Uh, but we talk about down, you know, we talk about the, the the tactical to the practical is the best way I can put it. We talk about down to earth things that we can do uh, to ensure ourselves uh, for the things that may come our way. So this is not your, uh, if it's your first episode, then you need to know, this is not your tinfoil hat, conspiracy theorist, far fringe uh, podcast that talks about building a bunker in the mountains of Idaho. Now, if you want to do that, you know, more power to you, and I think you can get something out of this uh, podcast on a daily basis as well, as long as you got an internet connection up there in your bunker. Uh, but I also think the person that's just looking around right now, kind of sticking their head up maybe for the first time and going, I don't feel comfortable anymore. I'm concerned. I'm afraid. The, the world looks different to me now. I see threats now that I had not seen before, and I want to understand them. And I, I, I don't know what to do, but I know I can do something Somebody help me figure out what to do. And that's what my show's all about. It's not about telling anybody what to do. It's not about telling anybody how to think. It, it, you know, I do talk about politics, but I've never told anyone on this show who to vote for or anything like that, and I won't. I've never told anybody on this show uh, where to stand on an issue. I'll tell you where I stand. I'll tell you why I feel that way. But then you have to take my information and do with you like what you like with it. You are free to object, and I welcome your criticisms and your critiques your feedback, and your requests. There are several ways to do that. One is you can send me email at jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com. That will come directly to me. You can use the feedback form on my website where I publish my podcast on a daily basis, which is thesurvivalpodcast.com. You can comment on individual episodes there because it's published in a blog format. So any show that you'd like to comment on specifically and interact with other people, you can go to the blog, and at the bottom you'll see the option to comment on the episode. You can there comment and interact with other people who have commented. And then probably the best way to really get involved with the community that we've built around here, which we're up to about 2,500 listeners a day now uh, that, that download this show, listen to this show uh, through FeedBurner alone. So we're actually reaching well over three to 4,000 people a day with this show. So the community is growing. There's uh, just under 1,000, I guess, on the forum. And that's where you may want to go to interact with other members. It's a survival podcast. 
Podcast.com slash forum, or just go there and click to the main site, click on forum. So there you go. There's a breakdown, a little house cleaning. I haven't really talked about those things in a while, so I wanted to do that. Let's get into today's show. And as I said in the beginning, and I want to start maybe saying more often, this show is for the hardcore survivalist. It's also for the person that, you know, like I said, is just maybe worried about losing their job or just lost their job and or, you know, just looking at their investments or whatever it is and trying to figure out how do I how do I stabilize? How do I ensure? How do I protect? How do I prepare for whatever's going to happen? And what the hell is the biggest potential threat? Today, though, what we're going to do, uh, a good host knows to listen to his audience. So at least a couple times a month, even though this isn't a call-in show where you can pick the phone up and call me and we're broadcasting live or anything like that, I like to answer questions from my audience. And I get a lot of emails and I get a lot of topic suggestions and things like that. And some of them are really suitable for a full show. Uh, some of them aren't because they're just too brief in what my answer would be. So I usually shelve those for a day like this. Some of them really warrant their own show, but I need to put some preparation into them, so I may give a short answer to a show like this and do a longer show later, so you get the point. Uh, the other thing I see is a lot of talk in the forum, and a lot of times I'll just pick an issue that's really hot in the forum that you know 20 or 30 people have commented on, and I know that must be important, and maybe I'll throw that into a show, so this is this is how this show is going to work today. Um, the first question I want to answer today, and it really prompted me to go ahead and do this show today, because it was an awesome question, came in from someone, I can't remember their name right now, because I just read it last night about midnight when I happened to check my email on my way to bed. And it was basically, you know, that they're into all the things that we talk about here. Gardening, living a simpler life, uh, valuing small town living and rural living and remote living and, uh, you know, good sense of community, buying locally, uh, growing some of your own food, learning how to work with your hands and knowing how things work. All that stuff's great, but they've realized that most children that grow up in a family like that always seem to feel that they're missing something. They want to run off to the big city and slay dragons and things like that. And how do you make a child value what you're teaching them and what you're giving them? You know, so that they don't just toss it as soon as they're in their teens or late teens or early 20s and run off and get a credit card and go into debt and do what everybody else does. Us, even despite the upbringing, what, what can you do to, you know, kind of hold that child into your community? And I have two answers for that. A very short one up front that's going to sound like, well, that kind of sucks, and then a longer one that will explain it and make it hopefully useful to parents, especially parents with young children, because the younger you start thinking this way, uh, the, the more advantageous it will be to you. The shorter answer is you don't hold them, you don't prevent them, you don't require them, you let them do what they're going to do when they become young adults, because that's, oh, people, you know, some people are just so stupid, they're just moronic, the way they change lights. Anyway, you, you let them be what they're going to be, because you can't prevent it anyway. So there is no holding a child into a community. There is no keeping a child into this type of mindset or community. There's no guarantees. You just have to let your child become the young man or young woman that they're going to become. Right? And that might kind of sound like it sucks, but it's the truth. And I have to speak the truth. And I have a 19-year-old son now, and, and I've learned these things through the parenting process. Now, the other side of this. 
the most important thing you can do to instill your values in your child is to live them with your child. To teach them to your child. To actively involve your child with them. And this is the part where most people screw it up. Don't put down the other side. Let it be. As they get older, you know, they get up into those those teens and they're ready to get a first job and they're going to start making some of their own money outside of an allowance and things like that. Start explaining how credit cards work, how they're bad, how people fall into the trap. Don't call the people stupid. Because what will happen is your son will be 19, 20 years old, kind of moved out of the house, and you're calling these people with credit cards and auto loans stupid. He's driving around a 10-year-old car, right? It's kind of beat up. And he looks around and his friends, who's supposed to be stupid, is driving a brand new car. He's got the latest in technical equipment. He wears nice clothes. He's got girls on him. You know, if it's a girl, same thing, but she's got guys with her, right? Everything about their life looks from the outside beautiful. Absolutely beautiful, right? So, when we talked about smoking yesterday. We teach a child not to smoke or not to do drugs. The way you teach them to do that effectively is you say, Hey, look, when you smoke, it doesn't look at first like anything bad is happening to you. And when people smoke, they actually have certain things that actually they think make them feel good. All right. Now, I don't think it's good. You probably won't think it's good either, but eventually people start to feel that way. And they think they're cool, and they think whatever. And if you look at them, they're fine. But here's what happens to your insides when you smoke. Here's what happens to your insides when you do drugs, right? And with drug prevention programs in schools, they bring a guy in who's 50 years old, who's lost everything in his life, that's now doing community service to say, this is what happens to you. So you explain what's going on, and then you demonstrate the result, and then at some point you have to say, I can't be here 24-7. You have to make your own decision. I'm giving you the information. Well, to me, that is like cancer. It works the same way. And you could see a person today that has advanced cancer, that hasn't been diagnosed yet, that doesn't know they have cancer, and everything about them could look wonderful. And it's just a matter of time until that disease begins to show itself. And many times with like a cancer, by the time that disease begins to show itself, it's too late. That's debt. Debt looks beautiful right until it begins to show itself for what it is. And for many people, financially and life Wise, it's too late. You have to explain that to your child. Now, if you have a seven-year-old child and you have the conversation I just did with them, they aren't going to have a clue what you're talking about. But you can slowly have that conversation in pieces, starting when they're seven with, do you really need to buy all that candy today? And ending with the analogy I gave you at 17, 18. Well, they start to get their first ridiculous pre-approved credit card applications in the mail. If you, you spend that lifetime teaching them that and living that example, they'll value it. All right? The same thing with something like gardening. Gardening is like 
a good cancer, if I could call it that, in reverse. In other words, a cancer is a tumor, and as the tumor grows, it causes problems. A garden starts with a tiny seed, and as it grows, it produces something beautiful. So at the same time, you're teaching a child about growing their own food. You can say, look, that dirt that we just dug and prepared and got ready, and it's now March, and we're ready to just begin planting, it looks like nothing. It looks empty. It looks pointless. And a salad in June seems miles away, and roasted corn in July seems miles away, but it starts here. And we're going to put this little seed in the ground, and this is what it will become. And when you teach that for a lifetime, it stays with the child. When you plant trees, you take this little spindly stick. If you have young children, plant a tree today. Let me just be as blunt as I can about this. I'm sad that I never got to do this because we moved so much. Alright, I did it a couple of years and then we moved. I do have these pictures when my son was very young. I planted a small pecan tree. And you take your small child and you have him stand next to the small tree and you take a picture of him. And you do that every year. You let the child see himself grow up next to that tree. And you make that part of your life lesson. And then you show them that once this tree, which for three or four years produced nothing, starts producing fruits or nuts or whatever that tree produces, that it's here every year as long as you continue to nurture and take care of that tree. Alright? And that you explain that when you're gone... Again, this is not the conversation for a seven-year-old. You're teaching this over a childhood growth experience from, from, from baby to toddler to, to, to child to young man, adolescent, teenager, adult, right? You're teaching it over that span. But one day I'll be gone. This tree will still be here. You'll be able to still look at it. Even if we don't own the property anymore, somebody will be produce, you know, pulling the fruit off this tree that it produces. And if someone cares for it, if someone takes care of it, you'll be gone. It'll still be here. And maybe it will be here if you have children even after they're gone with certain types of trees. You instill lessons like that. And you instill all these lessons about the good. You explain the story of the grasshopper and the ant. Tell your children the stories of Aesop. The fables. All of them. And don't tell them the new, namby-pamby, wishy-washy, mushy, you know, where eventually the ant took the grasshopper in and saved them. No, the ant did not take the grasshopper in. The grasshopper stays outside and dies. Tell them these stories. Do all of these things. And then let them go. And here's the reality. Even if you do it all right, they still may go out and buy a shiny car and get a shiny credit card at a very young age, and they might even load themselves down with student debt. They'll probably hold back some. They'll probably get themselves into a little bit of trouble, guide them as they work themselves out of it if that occurs. And if they don't, then you got you did a real good job, and you let them live the way that they're going to live. This is where this philosophy comes from for me. I am not a religious man. I'm not a big-time religious guy. I don't throw the Bible at people, definitely. But I quote the truth, and I quote wisdom wherever I find it. 
And in Proverbs, there's a proverb that says, Train up a child in the way that he is, she should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now that's been twisted in a modern age where people look at the word train and a lot of very strict families think what that means is you put this box around a kid and you guide him through life in a point where he can't have his own way. You teach him, you require, you demand. And then when he's older, he'll follow that course that he's been taught. There's a problem with a lot of people in their interpretation of the Bible. They don't speak the original language or have any knowledge of the original language that it was written in. Now, I happen to have a little bit of knowledge of some of the different things in the original Hebrew and what they mean, only because I've heard other people speak about them. And this knowledge made this one statement for me one of the most beautiful pieces of wisdom I've ever heard in the world. Or word. Or in the world, I'm sorry. There's one word in here that everything hinges upon, and it is train. To train a child in the way that he should go. Right? But the original Hebrew word that was translated to train is the same word in Hebrew that is used when a new child is born and he's got all the cookie and cookie stuff on him, right? And you have to cut the cord and all that jazz. A lot of times there's stuff in their mouth, right? Gook in their mouth and in their throat. And you have to clear it from their mouth. You have to clear it from their throat so that they can breathe. I take that first breath. And the word that's used to describe clearing the throat so that the baby infant who was just born can breathe and take its breath and suck in the world is the same word that's used in the parable where it says to train. So the, the actual parable is to clear the way for your child in the way that he should go. And when he is old, not when he is first stepping out on his own, when he is old, he will not depart from it. Friends, what that means is even though the grass turns brown in the winter, and your kids will make mistakes. The spring will come, and the new growth will come, and they'll be stronger. That's the best answer I can give to that. And I hope that helps young parents, soon-to-be parents, and active parents do a little bit more for themselves while they're raising their child. So, there's a little bit of, uh, I guess, lifestyle slash... uh, uh, you know, uh, parenting counseling. Now, I'm not a PhD. I'm not a doctor. Everything I just told you, uh, you cannot take that as being uh, given any kind of real counseling. You have to do what you like with it. You have to figure out where it makes sense for you. I'm just telling you what I've learned in raising a child from a young boy into a hell of a young man. Uh, and I didn't get to start doing that till my boy was about seven years old because he's my stepson, and you know, I adopted him when my wife and I got married. But that's that's what my uh, my life lesson has been, and that's what I was taught by my child as I had him grow up in my home. That is kind of a deep subject, and it's hard to make a transition from there, and it's taking up about half the time today, so I do need to transition. Uh, but I hope that one thing, if you've, if you've picked up nothing else from this show, I hope that helps you. 
Transitioning though, okay. Um, another question that I've had come in a lot is basically, if I haven't done anything yet, if I'm one of your new people or your new listeners or this community's new people, and man, I just really start to get all this right now, what do I do? Well, there is a lesson called starting from zero, and it's a very practical episode. The audio quality is kind of poor because it's back when I first started, but you can go listen to that. It's near the very beginning of the show. I'll put a link to it from the notes on this show so you can listen to that if you want to. And it'll talk about things like basic food storage and all. But the very first thing that you have to do is to get your mentality right. To get your head around the subject and to start understanding something. The people who have been prepping or preparing or getting ready for potential disaster, be it a personal disaster or a national disaster or anything in between there, that have been doing it for three or four years, and even the people who have been doing three or four years that have pretty good incomes and have a lot of resources, they're not done yet. Alright? So you're not going to be done prepping in 60 days. Alright? You might not even feel that you've gotten started. Now the odds are that when you look back over those 60 days, you'll realize you've done a lot for yourself if you're taking some little active baby steps along the way. Alright? So the first thing you need to do is start getting your mind right. second thing you need to do is get yourself a notebook and start charting your progress. You can do it on a blog, online, you can do whatever you want, but in some way, shape, or form, record what you're doing, record what you're planning, set goals for yourself, and judge yourself on pass-fail to getting those things done. And if you fail, ask yourself, why have I failed? Don't get down on yourself, don't get angry with yourself, simply say, what got in the way? Well, prevent it. And then say, well, if it was because I had to pay for something else or buy something else, now that I've bought it, was that the right decision? If it was the right decision, great. You defer the goal. If it was the wrong decision, say to yourself, I'm not going to let that happen again. Start getting yourself into that pattern. Two, you've got to build, if you have debt, you've got to build a plan to get rid of your debt. You cannot survive what's coming laden with debt. And the longer you maintain debt, the bigger it will grow and the more of a cancer it will become and you'll become what we're having happen for the first time in the history of our country right now. We're having people reach retirement age carrying massive amounts of debt. 65, 70 year old people starting to draw 75 year old people that have worked till 75 because they could afford to retire. You know, finally they just have to retire and go whatever they have and whatever Social Security continues to pay them. But they're sitting on massive amounts of credit card debt at that age. They're driving two cars because they're still married uh, they made it through somehow even with the debt and they got two cars they have two car payments they have credit card debt they have a house payment right uh, just just 20 years ago the people who were retiring at 65 what they had done over the years of working is they had paid for a house they were generally deferring retirement the last thing they did before they retired was pay off their house they certainly weren't caught carrying credit card debt and if they were buying a car that late in life they were buying either a used car or a new car but they were generally paying cash for it because they had saved their entire life to make that kind of spending power possible that's, that's going away. And you can see the progression from people that retired in the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, and as you go through the decades up, up until now, and who's retiring in the early 2000s. And you look at what it's going to mean for people that are retiring. If you're 30, you're going to retire at 70. All right. And 40 years from now, 2040, 
2048, 2050, what it's going to look like, and it's ugly. So you have to set a plan to eliminate that. Absolutely must do that. Another thing that you must do is realize that your first real step is to start becoming informed and to develop the psychology of survival, which means you're going to put every decision that you make through a test. Does this benefit myself and my family long-term or not? And if the answer is it does not provide a long-term benefit, then you have to really evaluate whether you need to do it or not. And I'm not saying you don't do anything with short-term gratification. You don't get a freaking ice cream cone or go see a movie once in a while. You know, you don't take away the pleasurable things in life, at least as long as they're available. But you don't do them all the time and every day. You have to start getting your mind into that set. Next thing is, if you are a married person, it's imperative to you get your spouse on board. You cannot do it alone. Uh, another quote from the Bible is, you should not be unequally yoked. And if one person is trying to dig out of debt and the other person is trying to go into debt, the person going into debt will win the battle. Because debt is much more powerful at compounding against you than you are at compounding against it. Debt can only be defeated with a unified front. It is the most forceful enemy most families will face in America today. You do need to learn how to defend yourself and your family. And to me, that means that you may want to go out and get some practical training with firearms. There is no better defensive weapon for home and family and self and for innocent people around you than a firearm in the hands of a well-trained individual. I believe if your state has a concealed carry law, you should go through and get the paperwork to become a concealed carry holder. You should take that step. It's not that expensive in any state. Most of the states with it have a high reciprocity rate with other states, which means you can carry in many other states as well. The more people that have those permits, the harder it will be able to, it'll be to take away. Your survival is dependent on some portion of society surviving as well. The more honest, dependable, hardworking, dedicated Americans who are well-trained with firearms that exist in society, the more stable our society is. You may not agree with that, but I think if you start to examine the reality behind it, you'll begin to understand why I feel that way. Again, you have to make your own decisions about whether or not you do all these things. I'm just answering the question as I see it. All right. Again, the individual in the end must make their own decisions. If you start to do these things, your life will begin to change for the better. I really believe you need to look at providing some level of your own food. I don't care if it's one little tree, one little bush, and a little pot full of greens, or if it's an all-out garden. You have to do something. There is a movement in the world right now to completely globalize the food supply. It's being championed and led by a company called Monsanto. Monsanto is probably the biggest threat that humanity has today because some of the genetic modifications that they're making with food. This is also not conspiracy theorist stuff, folks. You can go out and find everything you need to know about how dangerous this company is and the things that they're doing right on the Internet. And you don't have to read you know, tinfoil hat blogs or anything. If you read Monsanto's own propaganda and you read deep enough into it, you'll see 
that they are tampering with the essence of life. And they're doing it with seed. And seed pollinates and spreads on its own. And there is no way for them to contain or control and prevent what they're doing from getting out into the biosphere. And some of the things they're doing include making plants that unless they're spread with a, sprayed with a certain chemical at a certain time in their development will kill themselves and no longer reproduce. They're putting pesticides in the plants. The only form of resistance to this globalized food system you have is producing some of your own food and dealing with people who do the same. In other words, buying from local farmers who grow open pollinated variety uh, seeds that are not controlled by Monsanto. To take that step is very important. If you do all those things and just start listening to my show from the beginning up until now, and and please deal with the crappy audio in some of the first shows. There's a lot of those shows I probably should redo. I haven't redone them yet. But they lay the groundwork for a lot of the things that we talk about now. The next thing you need to do is you need to understand that most financial advisors are nuts. They're complete idiots, they're completely incompetent, and they do not have your best interest at heart when they set up your investment portfolio for you. You need to take control of your own investments, understand your own investments, and not leave it to your guy, or my guy, as I hear so many business people especially say, I got my guy, he takes care of that for me, he advises me, I just do what he says. You know, and it looks great when everything's going up, and it looks terrible when everything's going down. And a good, solid investment strategy maybe doesn't look great when everything's going down, But it doesn't look terrible. It doesn't look awful. There are ways to hedge and protect your investments. You need to start learning about them. With that said, you need to understand that this propaganda advice, and that's what it is, propaganda advice, that says you take all of your real savings, maybe you have a savings account with four or $5,000 in it, and you put a little bit of money in it, it goes up and down, and you, that's what you draw from short term for emergencies and whatever. But all the rest of your savings should go tax deferred, 401k, Roth IRA, whatever it is, and be left for retirement. You should put as much in there as you can and throw all that into quality mutual funds, they call it, is terrible advice. There are certain things that you absolutely have to understand to preserve your wealth. One is how terrible an investment, a mutual fund, can be if it's not used properly and if it's the exclusive vehicle of your investments. There's people that think that if I buy a mid-cap stock mutual fund, solid growth performance, that some guy that's a genius, a financial genius, manages that fund, he sells stock, he buys stock, he does exactly what's right, what he knows is best, to make sure that I get the best return that I can and my money is protected. It's not true. It's just not true. Because if it's a mid-cap stock fund, all the money has to stay in mid-cap stocks. So when that entire sector is tanking, it's like, here's the Titanic, there's the iceberg, we're going at it. We can't even turn the wheel and hit it glancing. We're going to hit it head on. That's what happened. You're looking at your 401k right now going, what the hell? That's what happened. And when everybody started selling their funds, they started driving the price of the, of the fund itself down. And you're sitting there waiting for him to do something. There's nothing he can do except allow people to liquidate. And he has to sell all the portions of the stocks to compensate for the people that are pulling their money out. Does that mean mutual funds are bad? No, it doesn't mean mutual funds are bad. What it means is that you need to not use them exclusively. And two, you need to not put all your money in there. 
You don't defer every saving penny you can until retirement because you might want to buy something in the next 20 years. And if you're 20 years old at 40, you try to take that money out, it costs you, and it costs you big time. So I'm, I'm for tax-deferred investments like 401ks, but I'm not for putting all your money there. If you can afford to save 15% of your income, maybe you're putting 7 to 10% in there and you're putting 5 to 7% into uh, things that are much more short-term like staggered CDs or uh, open, open bonds that you can divest of, simply holding cash, owning a little bit of precious metal like gold or silver, and diversifying through all of those things. Buying a few individual stocks here and there with good advice is another good thing to do to diversify. There are companies that do well even in a recession, even in a depression. And there's, there's times when their stocks get driven so low that it only makes sense to buy them because you know they're not going away. All right, And not to put all your money in them, but some small portion. You do all of these things, but you begin the educational process. And don't feel like you have to do something immediately. If you had listened to this show in the summer and the fall, early fall, I was screaming at people, get out of the stock market. Get out of If you're holding stock mutual funds, get out of them. Just go to cash. Do whatever you need, but get out of this. The freight train is on the way. We're sitting in the tracks. Get out. You haven't heard me say anything like that for probably two and a half months. Why? It's happened. The freight train already hit you. If you stayed in the market this long and you got busted, I don't see the market going much lower. It's, it's beginning to find a support floor. Now, we have to ask ourselves, how long is it going to stay at that floor? Are we going to do a two, three, four-year recession and slowly climb out of it? Or are we going to do a 10-year horizontal move like, like Japan did several years ago? Ten years, their market went nowhere, went sideways. We don't know yet, but bailing now doesn't make a lot of sense unless you need the money for something. It already it's too late. I'm sorry you went through that. That's why you have to start the educational process for yourself now. Now that sounds like a lot, but it's really not because everything that I gave you is something that you, you cannot do today. You can start today and you do in small bites over time. And if you take that approach, you're going to find yourself much better off in six months than you are right now. And if you take the little tiny added step to set goals, to write them down, to chart your progress, and to when you're feeling like you're not getting anywhere, to just turn the pages back and look at what you've done, you'll continue to start building a more solid, stable, and better life. I think I've got time for about one more question today. And this is something that I've been asked a couple times that I've never really talked about. Um, I've talked about a lot of things about my history, about how I developed my philosophy and the roots that were planted in me as a kid when I was in Pennsylvania growing up. My grandfather who was a big-time gardener and lived through the Great Depression. But... What I really never answered is, well, what made you into a survivalist? What what was your, you know, was there a seminal moment that you kind of slowly come into it? How did you get to a point where these things became important to you? And uh, condensing it as best I can, all I can tell you is that uh, my childhood was not 
the childhood that I just talked about at the beginning of the show. I didn't have parents that brought me up that way. I had a, a workaholic and, uh, frankly, an alcoholic for a father at the time, and he's cleaned his life up. But he, you know, he always worked hard. He just, you know, he, he worked till 8 o'clock at night. He came home, he drank uh, half a case of beer, and he went to bed. And that was his life. And he did that seven days a week. And uh, provided a good, stable life for us as far as an income, but uh, he just wasn't there when I grew up. He took Christmas Day off every year and spent it with us, and that was the most that I ever saw him, except when I went and worked with him. When we moved to Pennsylvania, I actually did get to spend a lot of time with my dad, and I learned about a lot about hunting and fishing, and he tried to make up for that time. And to be fair to my father, he did a pretty good job from the time I was 14 till the time I was 17, and I left for the Army. Uh, I, during that time, though, there was uh, there was a lot of conflict in my home. My parents were going through the, the beginnings of a divorce. They were actually legally separated, pending divorce, and still living in the same house because neither one of them would would move. And uh, I decided to separate myself from that situation. Moved in with my grandmother for a while. My grandmother was a great lady, but she was uh, she was honestly a little bit crazy on the religious level, and she went through all my stuff and things like that. And uh, eventually, decided I couldn't live under her roof with her rules. So I was only about 15 years old when I kind of moved out on my own and, and, and started staying with friends and eventually got my own place and uh, worked for a living. And, you know, I grew up with this this kind of a blend of like what sounds like a terrible life and then some other things that were like a wonderful life and a wonderful childhood. And I, you know, part of it was, you know, in Florida living in the swamplands and exploring and catching snakes and turtles and uh, even dealing with the occasional alligator and having that freedom and that huge piece of swamp behind the apartments we lived in to run on for miles and miles and miles when I was probably too young to be doing that. Um, and, and a grandfather that really taught these you know good things to me. And a father that taught me the outdoors. And a, and a good uncle that taught me the outdoors as well. And all of those things were in me. And then I joined the Army. I had to get the hell out of there because there was no opportunity for me. And I spent three years in the Army and they taught me the tactical aspects of life. They taught me mission-oriented concepts. They taught me that when you had something to get done, it wasn't a task. It was a mission, and you don't fail missions. You improvise, you adapt, and you overcome, and that was planted to be. And that probably saved me from either a mediocre existence or an existence that would have made me into an alcoholic or drug addict myself. Because most children of parents like that that don't get some kind of uh, additional help in their life, be it counseling or whatever, end up following that path eventually, especially when they grow up in a very impoverished area. I got out of the Army, I went back home, and I, I was different and I expected that everybody would be different and nobody was different. And that had me put myself into the positions that the first question was saying, how do I prevent my child from putting themselves into these positions? I moved to the city. I got a shiny credit card. I bought a new vehicle. I bought a boat. And I started working my career progression. And over time, I became very, very successful. I became, uh, in, in one company that I worked for, for about almost four years, I was the number one sales manager in the world for four years consecutively. And... Uh, that was a pretty pretty impressive place to be in my 20s. And I made a very good income, and I built an awful lot of debt with it, too. And I traveled, and I missed a lot of my kid growing up. And eventually, 
I went, can't do this anymore. And I downsized my life, and through all of this, I had been teaching myself how to, you know, work on the internet and uh, build websites and, and make money and market online. And eventually, decided I wanted to do it as a profession, and I made a switch from being a sales professional to being an internet marketer, and not just being one of these guys that sits at home, but actually having a career and a job based around it. And I went from an income of a, of a very solid six-figure income to a salary of about forty-five thousand dollars a year in my first position. I made that hard decision and I did it. We had corrected a lot of our debt issues by then. Uh, We put ourselves into a house that we definitely could afford and we started building our life that way. And I'm at a point now where I own uh, one company, I'm partners and several others and I've made a real career for myself that way. Through all of this, the ups, the downs, there was something pulling me back to a trout stream a deer stand and a garden and in this time period I saw a lot of things happen and none of them in of themselves were the seminal moment that made me say okay now I have to do something they all added up and the three big ones were first the potential for Y2K I looked at that, and I stored up a little bit of water, and I didn't really know why I was doing that. We stored up a little bit of extra food, and then I kind of took a step back, and I said to myself, huh, what could really happen because of this? And I looked at all of it, and by then I was I was in sales, and I was in the communications industry, and I had quite a few contracts that were pending that I had to wait till after January 1st to get closed because companies were holding back funds because they didn't know what was going to happen either. And when I really thought about the whole thing, I went, well, traffic lights are going to shut down. The electrical grid's not going to go. This is nonsense. This is being overly hyped to make a buck, and I just relaxed, and we had a great New Year's party. But that made me start to think about, well, what if something did go wrong? You just because this, and I knew, by the time, you know, December came around, I'm like, yeah, this is going to be a non-event. But it made me say, well, what if something did happen? And I started to remember pictures of Homestead Air Force Base in Florida that a friend had brought down to Panama when I was stationed down there and what that aftermath looked like. And what if it was more widespread? And I remember hearing stories as a kid in Jacksonville, Florida, about what would happen if a hurricane ever hit that place. And then Hurricane Katrina came. Or actually, 9-11 happened before Hurricane Katrina. 9-11 was another big thing. 9-11 made me realize that we were vulnerable and whatever your view about 9-11, conspiracy theorists to just, it is what it is. And I'm somewhere in the middle there. I don't think that, you know, it was a black ops operation, you know, false flag. But I think that we knew more than we let on that we knew and that we didn't do everything we could to prevent the attack. And it doesn't really matter at that point what, who's responsible or who was wrong or who made the mistake. When you saw that day and you saw that moment, you realized that something really terrible can go wrong. And you start to realize that 9-11 could have been a lot worse. If somehow the people that flew those planes into those buildings had managed to get some type of additional nuclear devices or something onto those planes uh, and created a dirty bomb at the same time they were bringing those towers down, it could have been a lot worse. And that maybe instead of four planes, they got a hold of 20 or 30. Who knew how 
bad it really could have been. And what if they got a tactical? And I started to think about that. And that's when I really started to take things a little bit more seriously and do a little bit more and started, you know, hey, the garden's got to get planted. i got to start really taking debt seriously. How do you go from 9-11 to taking debt seriously? Well, how many people lost their jobs? How much downsizing happened? And this was right about the time that I made that choice to go into Internet marketing full-time. Uh, you know, just a little bit after that, uh, came out of the sales world, we moved back down here, and I went into doing that. And then Hurricane Katrina. And I looked at Hurricane Katrina, and I just went, that's just a natural event. And I started to examine the threats at that point. And, and all of that accumulated to make me take things seriously and to make me put effort into doing this every day. And that's what made me get to where I am today. And a lot of it was just gathering knowledge along the way, but the other side of it was the roots that were planted in me. Again, like I said, on a trout stream, on a deer stand, and in a garden. And that's why I started today's show with answering that individual's question. If you teach your children that way, no matter what kind of life they have, eventually they'll come back to it. Because I can tell you, I had the high-flying life, but what I came back to was a simpler life. Because even with all the mistakes that were made along the way, once those seeds are planted in you, you can't ever really get away from them. This has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. scream and you can holler it really doesn't matter cause it all gets spent